Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hey guys, ready or not, 2024 is here, and we here at Breaking Points are already thinking of ways we can up our game for this critical election. We rely on our premium subs to expand coverage, upgrade the studio, add staff, give you guys the best independent coverage that is possible. If you like what we're all about, it just means the absolute world to have your support. But enough with that, let's get to the show. Good morning, everybody. Happy Tuesday. We have an amazing show for everybody today. What do we have, Crystal? Indeed, we do. A lot to get into this morning. So first of all, the hunger war is becoming absolutely unbearable in Gaza. And this comes as Lloyd Austin was uh, in Israel. Actually, a whole parade of U.S. officials are in Israel. And he is once again warning Israel to protect civilians. So we'll get into all of that. Also, this is a huge deal, not getting a lot of attention yet, but I think that it will. U.S. Steel has sold to a Japanese company. Some politicians are already speaking out against this, as well as the labor union that represents those workers, so we will break all of that down for you. We also have a new bombshell report from ProPublica about, once again, Clarence Thomas, all the money that he's taken, and some of the context for when and why mm. that money began to flow. So very interesting report there that we should dig into. There's also a new deep dive into the perplexing calm of the Biden campaign. Apparently, at least their public face, they claim they're not worried. I don't know how they could be not worried, given the polling that we have seen. So we'll get into that. And also, most importantly, Sagar and I are going to tackle that very controversial yes. map from the new Civil War movie. So lots to talk about today. I've been doing a lot of war games in my head, and you guys should get ready for some <laughs> risk-level analysis. This yeah. is going to be fun. Yes, and you've picked a side uh, already as I've well. I've picked a side. I've declared my allegiance. I've declared my allegiance. Okay, before we get to that, though, uh, for we've got our yearly discount, which remains 
there for our membership. It's going to be a crazy year, so if you can help us build up for that. As a thank you, and as always part of our premium subscription, we release big ticket interviews to our premium subscribers first. So we have Norm Finkelstein actually returning to the show. That will be dropping sometime later next week. Early, it will come to the premiums. And Tucker Carlson as well. He's going to be doing a sit-down. And so we will release all of that to our premium subscribers. If you want to watch it first, breakingpoints.com, you get early access to that, and you get to help us build. And you've got that yearly membership that remains on discount. So there you go. Go ahead and take advantage. All right, so let's go ahead and get to the news out of Israel, starting with, as I mentioned, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin was there yesterday, and among other comments, once again, warning Israel about uh, civilians. Let's take a listen. Democracies are stronger and more secure when we uphold the law of war. And I've, as I've said, protecting Palestinian civilians in Gaza is both a moral duty and a strategic imperative. So we will continue to stand up for Israel's bedrock right to defend itself. And we will also continue to urge the protection of civilians during conflict and to increase the flow of humanitarian aid into Gaza. That's important as Israel fights to dismantle the Hamas uh, terrorist infrastructure in Gaza. And it will also be crucial for our work with our allies and partners after the fighting stops. This, of course, very similar to what any number parade of U.S. officials have been saying, have been leaking to the press, etc. Has Israel cared? Have they listened to any of it? No, because there's no teeth behind it, ultimately. It's just words. There has been no indication that there are actual red lines. In fact, they've said quite the opposite, that there are no red lines for Israel's conduct um, in their assault on Gaza. So we can see throughout the region some of the fallout in terms of U.S. opinion of the U.S. throughout the region. This was a pretty fascinating poll from Arab Barometer of Tunisia. Put this up on the screen. This was flagged by Dr. Trita Parsi. So before Gaza, views of the U.S., this is again in Tunisia, which is kind of representative of uh, a lot of the countries in the region, the Arab countries in the region. The view of the U.S. was 40% positive. After Gaza, 10% positive. Approval of Joe Biden, pre-Gaza, 29%, not great. (laughs) After Gaza, 6%. And one of the things, Sagar, that comes out here is that actually um, Israel, views of Israel were already dim. They haven't really changed. It's the views of the U.S. that have absolutely fallen off the cliff. And on the other side, views of China, oh, what's the favorability rating of China in Tunisia? 75%. Yeah. Favorability rating of of Russia in Tunisia, 53%. Mm So um, countries that have taken a different approach to this conflict uh, have seen uh, a boon to their ratings and the U.S. and anyone else really associated with the U.S. or like Saudi Arabia, who had been uh, approaching Israel and trying to normalize relations, their approval ratings have fallen off a cliff because of our association with Israel. One of the reasons Tunisia is very important is that that was where the uh, so-called Arab Spring began, the Tunisian Revolution, of course, back in 2010. And Trita is very correct here in terms of looking at the North Arab states like Egypt, Tunisia, Morocco, uh, any of these, Algeria, these countries, largely because they're not democracies per se, but popular sentiment matters a lot more in terms of how it affects the government and 
and these are obviously larger Arab populations in the region. As to why should we we should care at all? Well, not only does it affect you know overall U.S. soft power, but it's also a pretty decent barometer for terrorism and for feelings of terrorism against the U.S. It also would highlight if we do get involved in some sort of broader war in the Middle East, when Yemen, who is going to side with whom, which governments can declare their allegiance, what level of support, bases, whether U.S. Tra- troops will be safe if they're forward deployed. These are all the things you got to think about, about overall U.S. support. And this actually fits with a broader point John Mearsheimer's been making on Israel now for basically decades, ever since he wrote his book in 2000, I think it was 2006, somewhere around there, was that by polarizing all U.S. policy in the Middle East around two central subjects of the last 20 years, but also the last 75, Israel and Iraq, we have done ourselves a tremendous disservice because it has ignited a tremendous amount of popular sentiment against us. And at the same time, we try to you know go around this by just making deals with dictators. And these dictators, have control, but they're not absolute monarchs in the way that we might like to think. So how these people think about us matters a lot in terms of our mobility in the region, the safety of our troops, and also of terrorism generally. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And sort of exposes the lie of the idea that actually the thing that is in the interest of our security is to give blanket, unconditional support to Israel. So let's take a look at some of the actions that our government is currently co-signing can put this up on the screen. These are images that just came out. Uh, This is from the AP of an aid truck being uh, raided. You can see people running after it, climbing on top of it. This comes as uh, there is widespread critical levels of hunger throughout the Gaza Strip. We can put this next piece up on the screen, guys. Uh, Human Rights Watch just came out with a new report saying that Israel is using starvation as a weapon of war in Gaza. They go on to say um, that uh, this is based on not only the, the actions, the level of hunger, also the stated intentions of Israeli officials. Now, you might say at this point, like, well, that's kind of obvious, but it was important for them to do an in-depth investigation and see what people were experiencing on the ground. The UN World Food Program reported on December 6th that nine out of 10 households in northern Gaza and two out of three households in southern Gaza had spent at least one full day and night without food. International humanitarian law, of course, they point out, or the laws of war, prohibit the starvation of civilians as a method of warfare. The Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court provides that intentionally starving civilians by depriving them of objects indispensable to their survival, including willfully impeding relief supplies, is a war crime. Criminal intent does not require the attacker's admission, but can also be inferred from the totality of the circumstances of the military campaign. Of course, we know that at the very start of this war, uh, Israeli officials announced they were launching a complete siege. We know that conditions have only continued to deteriorate, and there are now some scattered reports coming out of people actually starving to death, children in particular, um, though those haven't been uh, completely confirmed. If this continues in this direction, though, you can certainly expect that will be an additional cost and toll on civilians of this war. And Sagar, uh, in addition to this, the Washington Post, which we can put up on the screen, is taking a look at the spread uh, of disease. This is actually something Ryan has been highlighting from early mm-hmm. on because recall, you got no fuel, 
You have no sanitation facilities. You have now 1.9 million uh, residents of Gaza who've been forcibly displaced. People living in crowded circumstances, in shelters, outside, in tents. So it is just a horrific situation in terms of the spread of disease. And then you add to that the fact that so many hospitals have been uh, attacked. There is very little in the way of medical supplies. So things that should be easily treatable there's no ability to treat them. Um, let me just read you a little bit of this because this report was really heartbreaking to give you a sense of what this is like for people who are living through this on the ground. Um, one family, they talk about how Israeli strikes killed one of Tahani Abu Tema's sons and one of her brothers, but she fears a different killer is stalking what's left of her family disease. Abu Tema's two-year-old daughter is suffering from diarrhea, vomits, sneezes, and is shaking from the cold and lack of food. The mother of six told the Washington Post, the child asked me for food all the time, but I am unable to provide, which forces me to give her anything, even if it is contaminated. And once again, there is no ability to treat this child. So um, she's extremely concerned about her ability to survive. Staph infections, chickenpox, rashes, urinary tract infections, meningitis, mumps, scabies, measles, and food poisoning all, are all on the rise. The World Health Organization particularly concerned about bloody diarrhea, jaundice, and respiratory infections. The UN is tracking 14 different diseases with epidemic potential. That is according to Reuters. Yeah, well, actually, one of the uh, stats that really jumped out to me is that currently of the 1.3 million Gazans who live in shelters, there is an average of one toilet for every 220 people and a shower for every 4,500. So unsanitary conditions, obviously, and already was one of the more densely populated regions on planet Earth. And it demonstrates, too, about the humanitarian disaster of which will continue if this is allowed. The real issue, I think, here is about uh, something we continue to highlight, or at least I've been trying to make this point, which is really unfortunate. They Probably the worst has yet to come. Uh, this is bombing. We have lawlessness, as we saw with the aid convoys. Uh, Hamas doesn't care about the population. Israel doesn't really care about the population. They're basically uh, fending for themselves. You've got the uh, blockade and the Rafah crossing, which continues to be completely closed, both by the Egyptian government and the Israeli government on the other side. So these people are really stuck. And the issue, I think, is at the vacuum of where this is all going to emerge. We saw a lot of this play out in Iraq immediately after the so-called liberation, where we had full-blown looting across the city. And similar, you know, because we were stupid and we fired the bath party and debathification, we didn't have civil and city services. They took well over a year to come back. And Iraq was, frankly, a far more developed place and, you know, had more, a lot more governance and they had at least access to some cross-border trade and other things that were available to them afterwards. So this is a really, really bad situation. And I do think it demonstrates that a lot of the day after Gaza situation is going to come down to genuine crystal civil administration. The security situation will almost be a secondary concern because these amount of people living in these types of conditions, this is one where it's a powder keg, not only of terrorism, but I mean, who, who knows? You could see a full-blown run at the at the border to Egypt. You could see, you know, a, a swarming of an aid truck today. Imagine six months from now, a year from now, two years from now. So that is where I think uh, the big, the big flashing red light on this is going to be. And I, I mean, look, the U.S. is not stupid. That's why Lloyd Austin began with all of those comments. He can see it very clearly. The only question is what U.S. policy is going to compel a change and a difference? And of course, that hasn't materialized yet. Yeah, not whatsoever. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. 
Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash news. That's lifelock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. There's another incident that has really shocked and horrified people, including the Pope. Um, we can go ahead and put this up on the screen. He spoke out and called terrorism um, this incident where two people, a mother and her daughter, were killed while they were at a Catholic parish. Um, they, One of them went out to go to the bathroom, and they were targeted by the IDF. Um, he says, some say this is terrorism. This is war. Yes, it is war. It is terrorism. Going on to say, that is why the scripture affirms that God stops wars, breaks the bow, splinters the spear. Let us pray to the Lord for peace. Um, this is not the first time that the Pope has referred to Israeli actions in Gaza as terror and has called for an end to the hostilities. We can put up the screen on the screen, the statement from the Latin Patriarchate. Let's put this up on the screen in Jerusalem on the shooting and killing of two women in that Catholic church in Gaza. So these are some of the details uh, according to this uh, local Catholic organization around noon today, December 2023-16. A sniper of the IDF murdered two Christian women inside the Holy Family Parish in Gaza, where the majority of Christian families have taken refuge since the start of the war. Nahida and her daughter Samar were shot 
shot and killed as they walked to the sister's convent. One was killed as she tried to carry the other to safety. Seven more people were shot and wounded as they tried to protect others inside the church compound. No warning was given. No notification was provided. They were shot in cold blood inside the premises of the parish. Um, the uh, spokesperson or uh, top aide for Bibi Netanyahu was asked about this attack in particular, um, asked to justify it. Uh, let's take a listen to how he responded. So I would I would reject the the categorization of uh, of the words he used, cold-blooded killing. That would indicate a deliberate targeting of civilians. That's something we don't do. We don't shoot people who are going to church to pray. It just doesn't happen. Uh, that's not the way the IDF operates. That's against our rules of engagement. Uh, we don't know exactly what happened, and I would urge people not to jump to conclusions. There have been in the past all sorts of stories put out by Hamas and their supporters accusing Israel of all sorts of terrible deeds, and in the end, they've proved to be wrong. And uh, uh, we're talking about a combat area. There's exchanges of fire between Israeli forces and uh, the Hamas terrorists. To say that Israel is deliberately targeting Christian worshippers, that's, that's a terrible accusation that is unfounded. Would you acknowledge, Mr. Regev, that the bullets that killed these women were fired by the IDF? I do not know that to be true. Obviously, we're looking into it. Uh, uh, could they have been killed uh, by, by Palestinian terrorists who were shooting at our people indiscriminately? I don't know. Uh, but we've got to be very careful. Uh, there was there have been countless stories this, since this conflict began where reports out of Gaza, people are 100% sure that Israel did something terrible or this, that, or the other. And in the end, it's been proven conclusively that that was not the case. And people have had to retract their words. Unfortunately, some have refused. He is correct. It is a terrible accusation. And if he cares about getting to the truth, he would allow an independent investigation, but I wouldn't hold my breath. Right. Well, actually, what's come out since then is that, quote, the IDF says that an initial review says that IDF troops who were operating against Hamas terrorists in the area operated against a threat that they identified in the area of the church. The IDF is conducting a thorough review of the incident. And the uh, Catholic Cardinal Pizabala, he wrote in his letter, actually not only identified them, but said, Crystal, that seven more people were shot and wounded as they tried to protect others inside of the church compound. No warning was given, no notification. They were shot in cold blood, as you said, inside the premises of the parish. The letter was then re republished completely in full by the Holy See, which is the Vatican News Agency. So, I mean, obviously this is representing a split. Now, it shouldn't matter whether you're Christian, Muslim, or whatever. But I think what it does highlight is that there are a lot of other constituencies who may not necessarily have said anything, but who are now highlighting some of the situation inside of Gaza. And I actually saw a pretty significant, Crystal, uh, reaction by the Catholic community here in Washington, who are even in the Republican Party at this news. You'll remember, too, when uh, Justin Amash's relatives were also right. killed, you know, in this incident, because I think, you know, and I, I hate to say this, but with a lot of these people, it's genuinely undeniable. Like, they obviously have nothing to do with Hamas. You can't even say that they're, like, sympathizers or anything. They're, they're, they're literal Catholics. Right. And uh, this is the Latin patriarchate. As I understand it, uh, traces its roots in the region all the way back to the Crusades. So they've been operating in the area for hundreds and hundreds of years, and this goes to the delicate balance of the religions, and, you know, it 
probably at its best with a time when all three could live in the region in peace. Obviously, yeah. it's also been warring now for some time. But uh, Gaza is not a monolith. You know, we like to think of it, I think, as a place where it's just like you know, all Islamist and it's like some Muslim Brotherhood, Hezbollah. Uh, Hamas and PIJ, Palestinian Islamic Jihad sanctuary. It's just not. It's a, it's a diverse society in the way that many, you know, think of Syria, Druze, Christians, and other ethnic groups that have lived in the region with thousands and thousands of years of history. I personally know actually some Palestinian Christians. They trace their roots to back there just as long as everybody else. So yes, that's it's, right. a, it's a tragic incident, I, I think. And I, to me, actually demonstrates again that the IDF and its lack of discipline. I don't know if you saw this just yesterday. I saw a girl. IDF soldier who apparently participated in some dare where she stood in front of an art- artillery, a piece of artillery while it was fired as some sort of like TikTok dare and is now, quote, under investigation by the IDF. It just seems like uh, people there are playing games. And a lot of these people are, their level of discipline. And I, again, you can even see, we've been contacted actually too by people who have served in Iraq. They're like, I did four tours in Iraq. And they're like, I've never seen anything like this before. The amount of, uh, the lack of discipline here. And one of the reasons why I keep harping on discipline and training is that even our reservists, guys who are police officers in the National Guard, they took a lot of training. They were held to very strict and rigid standards whenever they're deployed to Iraq specifically for this region because the consequences of a single bad incident are obviously ridiculous. I mean, here you have uh, two people who were uh, allegedly sniped, you know, by the IDF. They don't even seem to appear to deny it, honestly, you know, even though he suggested yeah. it was Hamas. Like, but yeah, who knows? you've now gotten the freaking Pope calling you people <laughs> committing acts of terrorism. That's why you're supposed to, and I understand, you know, bad things happen in war, but like we're looking at a pattern here of disciplinary issue after disciplinary issue after lack of conduct issue where the leadership both from Netanyahu all the way down to the uh, tactical level of the IDF, they just don't seem to have a very good control of their soldiers. Yeah. Which is, you know, and that's, this is just a military judgment. You can put the morals and all that if you want to. The question is, is like, are you accomplishing what you set out to do? Because it's clear, if you once you've lost, when you lost the Pope, you know, in, in, in a war against Islamic Jihad, I don't know what's going on here. Yeah, well, you're, yeah. you're right to lay out, you know, why, why highlight this incident yeah. when there have been now, you know, 10,000 children alone killed um, by Israel in this conflict, and the vast majority of them, of course, Muslim children. Um, it's because it is the war of words between the Pope and, you know, this uh, the spokesperson or top aide for Bibi Netanyahu basically calling the Pope a liar or calling into question what actually happened here. And it is the fact that, you know, there's no way that you can smear these people as somehow aiding and abetting Hamas, somehow being, you know, legitimate military targets. Everything about it screams violation of international law from the location where they were, this Catholic parish, walking over to a literal convent to the fact that they are women, to the fact that they are Catholics. Everything about, you know, this religious minority, which has already been through quite a lot um, living in uh, in Gaza here. So everything about it screams outrage, and there really is no justification for it whatsoever. And that's why it's caught so many people's attention. Um, at the same time, you know, there are many other horrors. It's hard to pick which ones to cover every day. Let's put this up on the screen. The UN is calling for an investigation into yet another hospital raid. This one is at Kamal Adwan Hospital. Um, There were a a number of patients still at this hospital. The doctors who were there said that a number of these patients uh, died of dehydration 
because of the raid on this hospital, the fact that they had been completely cut off from any supplies. A nurse who asked that uh, that her name not be used didn't provide a specific number, but said that a number who had non-fatal injuries died of dehydration. There were also a number of infants who died when the uh, their incubators were shut off from a lack of fuel. What really extra horrified people, I suppose, is some of the images that came out afterwards. Let's go ahead and put this up on the screen of uh, bulldozers from the IDF coming through and uh, plowing through the courtyard and buried under this rubble are dead bodies. Uh, the, uh, some reports I had seen indicated that these bulldozers had actually mowed down people who were alive. What the nurses and doctors on the scene are saying is that they had been forced to bury patients who had died in this courtyard and that the bulldozers plowed over these already dead bodies. Of course, you know, uh, one of the nurses there said they shoved them over without any respect of human dignity into what looks like a pile of rubble. You can only imagine if it was your loved one who was there um, receiving this treatment after they had died. And just as a reminder, you know, the, the number of hospitals that have been targeted here, according to Euromed Monitor, 23 different hospitals around the Gaza Strip have been targeted. And overall, including those hospitals, 126 health facilities, that includes ambulances, clinics, and hospitals have been targeted. Yeah, I think it's a tragic situation, obviously. And so uh, the more that these spread, this is connects back to, and why, you know, why are we structuring the show this way, is I think all of it traces back to the level of animus against us. And this is, you know, the difficulty and kind of like how I look at, like to look at things too. There's the Israel situation, which we're trying to keep abreast of. There's a bit broader geopolitical situation, though, of which the powder keg. And this is where I'm a little bit conflicted. On the one hand, I'm deeply annoyed that the entire sphere around, it's like Israel right now is the sun and all of us are just orbiting around it. All of American politics, our defense secretary and national security advisor are spending more time in Tel Aviv than they are here in Washington. Mm -hmm. So that, personally, I find that incredibly irksome because I'm like, hey, you know, we actually have problems here. We have got a whole thing we got to talk about with U.S. Steel. At the same time, why do we and all these policymakers have to dedicate so much time to it? Because a single instance can set the entire world on fire. And we have to find a way here, I think, of trying at best to bring things to a way where we don't ignite, you know, Middle East region against us. And just think about this purely in terms of interest. I tried to make people think about this too in terms of Ukraine. And now here, the amount of blood, capital, treasure that we've already spent in this region and now continue to dedicate to this region, not to mention polarizing all of American politics on a third world ethnic conflict is insane. And yet the consequences just simply because of the investment of so many of these global populations means that it also is one which could decide the fate of our nation and Joe Biden's future too yeah. whenever it comes to the 2024 election. And for me, it's not only that, but it's the fact that, you know, there are lots of horrors unfolding around the world at any given point in time. So people say, oh, why, why focus so much on this one? Like, why do you care so much about this one? It is unparalleled what Israel is doing right now in Gaza in terms of the level of civilian death and in terms of our direct complicity. 
And you can just look at the comparisons to previous mass bombing campaigns. You can look at the comparisons to civilian death ratios in this war on Gaza versus previous conflicts. I mean, Sagar, you made this point earlier, and mm. you've made it for a long time, which is completely accurate. They're making what we did in Iraq and Afghanistan look like we were angels. And there was plenty to criticize there as well, which we did. Um, this is on a whole other scale and level. And so to watch all of this unfolding and the number, almost, you know, very little dissent in Washington, even though the public is crying out for a ceasefire and demanding an end to the hostilities and wanting to see humanitarian relief come in, to watch the number of people who can just justify things that I could never imagine people being able to justify. That's the other reason to, you know, care about what is happening here. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. So let's go ahead and turn to, you know, what may happen next. Uh, Israel has been very cagey about even whether they even have a day after plan, uh, insisting they're just focused on the current mission of quote unquote targeting or hunting Hamas, which, you know, they seem to have had relatively little success in, much more success plowing down civilians and bulldozing hospital courtyards. Let's put this up on the screen. This was a five step plan. Floated, uh, floated by this guy, Danny Danen. He's a senior Likud Knesset member. He's also the former UN rep from Israel. And here's his Gaza the day after plan for what it's worth, which I think is uh, you know worth digging into. 
Number one, demilitarize Gaza, ensure the removal of all terror elements, including weapons, ammunition, and rockets, and any other infrastructure connected to terror. During and after the demilitarization period, the IDF will be granted full freedom of action, enabling Israel to respond to all security threats. He says the sole weaponry allowed into Gaza will be handguns for policing activities. So I suppose Israel has the right to defend themselves, but Palestinians, not so much. Establishment of a security buffer zone. Um, this would be a three-kilometer area. He says uh, the length of no less than three kilometers. Entry to the buffer zone will be strictly prohibited to all parties. This is something the U.S. has been against, by the way, because it constitutes a taking of additional Palestinian land, something the U.S. at least claims to oppose. Number three, Israeli presence at the Rafah crossing. The Rafah crossing on the Gazan side will be rebuilt with new technologies and capabilities, and it will serve as a crossing between the Gaza Strip and Egypt. It will be overseen by Israel and international forces, so no longer will uh, Egypt be solely responsible for patrolling the Rafah crossing. Israel will be involved as well. This one really got a lot of people's attention. Quote unquote, voluntary immigration. Gazans who wish to immigrate voluntarily to countries that are ready to receive them will be given the opportunity to leave in an orderly manner to their destination countries of choice. Uh, this very consistent with what Netanyahu has reportedly said, which is his desire to quote unquote, thin out the population of the Gaza Strip. So the basic idea here is after we render most of the Gaza Strip completely unlivable, we will allow you to leave your home uh, and you know whether or not you return or not, we shall see. Number five, economic rehabilitation. This one in some ways was the most dystopian to me. An international framework will include countries in the region to promote economic rehabilitation, management of all civilian aspects, special emphasis on the creation of a new educational system. So an international coalition to create a new re-education system in Gaza, each and every area of Gaza, they say the pace of investments will be closely matched the pace of eradicating the culture of hate and incitement. So, uh, Sagar, I wonder what you make of this plan and how significant yeah. it is. Well, uh, in terms of its significance, I think really what it highlights is that the Israelis want the best of both worlds. They want total freedom of maneuver and security over Gaza. But then they don't want to govern Gaza and they don't want to deal with the quote-unquote economic rehabilitation. This drives me insane because, as you can see, they're like the management of all civilian aspects, a new educational system. It's like, okay, you destroyed all of the infrastructure. And then you basically want to kill the people that you want and then leave. And then just say, hey, you win and everybody else, you guys come in and face. It's like, no, 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 no. You're responsible for it. And you're paying for this shit. Nobody else is going to be paying for it. Especially, so if you have such objections to their educational curriculum, go for it. You want to militarily occupy and compel the population and to try and work against a thousand years of uh, of hatred and all this other stuff. And if you, if you think you're so good as an imperial power, be our guest. There's no way they're going to do that. They don't have the military capability. They don't have the economic capability. That's one thing that we should uh, we keep highlighting here. But I don't think the audience may you know understand the ramification. This war costs a hundred to two hundred million a day because of the reservists. The Israeli economy is really suffering right now. Their prime age working population is either in the IDF or in Gaza, and now they've got to pay all these death and health benefits. I mean, this is this is serious business that you can't really move away from. And the backbone of the high-tech economy and all of that was built such that the Palestinians could serve and the Arab population as kind of the servant class yes, that would do right. uh, you know, a lot of the more lowly work. Now what? What are you gonna do? You're gonna import you know, a mass amount of population at the same time you got these Palestinians here on your border? I think this demonstrates 
and I think you know, also in general, the misalignment of uh, the Israelis very rarely, at least more recently, have just been saying the quiet part out loud. They're like, yeah, we'd prefer it if people just left. The US, Egypt, the Jordan, Saudi Arabia, UAE, it's like, that's a non-starter, that's not gonna happen. Uh, then the UN is obviously calling for a humanitarian thing and they're gonna try and administer some of this to the best of your ability, but look at Somalia, look at, I mean, I could go on Kosovo, all these other places that have been under semi-UN administration. It's failed miserably. So this is the worst of all worlds. Yeah. And we're gonna end up in that situation, some sort of gray zone, you know, period where you, we'll see, you know, governance is up in the air and full, full-blown full collapse is probably the most likely scenario for all of us. Yeah, the, the thing that I see most consistently reiterated is framing as humanitarian the desire to push Gazans out of the Gaza Strip. And, you know, the U.S. says they're opposed to this. Egypt says they're opposed to this. They say they're very opposed to this. Other countries in the region say they're very opposed to this. But, you know, they've already rendered northern Gaza completely uninhabitable. They're working on doing the same for much of southern Gaza. So then they say, oh, well, you know, you can have a, a much better life after we've completely destroyed your home and all the infrastructure and all of the hospitals and all of the schools, et cetera, if you just leave. And, uh, you know, there was this bipartisan plan that we saw that's being floated here in Washington, D.C., to use U.S. aid dollars to compel various countries in the region to take in Palestinian refugees. Um, Joe Biden, uh, little noticed, asked for dollars for our country to resettle both Ukrainian and Palestinian refugees here as well. So the groundwork is being laid here, both in terms of, you know, money is being appropriated, but also in terms of the sort of propaganda or information war to try to get people to see this as a humanitarian outcome. So the question remains, though, of course, well, what do Israelis actually want? Mm -hmm. What are their thoughts about the day after in Gaza? And, you know, we've talked to a number of people. I've talked now to, you know, to, we talked to that pollster. Uh, we, I spoke with an, another analyst who, you know, had really analyzed sort of Israeli public opinion. Both of them said Israelis are mostly, Jewish Israelis are mostly not thinking about the day after. They're thinking about the here and now. They're thinking about what's going on in Gaza right now today. They're thinking about October 7th. But to the extent that people are thinking about the day after, there's a new poll that just came out. Put this up on the screen. It was written up by the Times of Israel. So uh, more than half of Israelis actually oppose annexing the Gaza Strip and reestablishing settlements that there used to be there, which were uprooted during Israel's 2005 disengagement. This is a poll from Hebrew University published on Sunday. You can see here 33%, so about a third of the population, supports annexing the Gaza Strip and reestablishing settlements. 56% oppose annexing Gaza, and 11% are uncertain. Um, I was also looking up, you know, how do people feel about like a two-state solution? And mm -hmm. the most recent poll finds majority opposition. 52% of Jewish Israelis oppose a two-state solution and only 35% support. So to me, Sagar, it seems like there's a, a lot of sense of what people don't want, but mm -hmm. less of a consensus around what they do want. And if you dig into these numbers further, they also asked about, you know, some more specifics of what they would like to see in terms of governance of Gaza. 23%, that's the largest number of Israelis support a coalition of moderate Arab states overseeing affairs in Gaza. 22% are in favor of
have Israeli military rule, so those two solutions are basically tied. 18% would like to see an international force, and a further 18% lean toward that idea of Israel annexing Gaza outright. The least popular option is the one that the U.S. has been pushing, which is the return of the Palestinian yeah. Authority. Yeah, and realistically, only two of these are going to happen. You're either going to have the Israelis who are going to occupy it or the Palestinian Authority. Both of them are very re unrealistic. The Arab states will never do this. A, they don't have the military cap capability, and they don't want to deal with Why it. Why would and they? Yeah, I, I wouldn't do it if I were them. If I was the Jordanian king and I watch how my country basically became Palestine, no way I would deal with that. Then you've got the 11% for return of the PA, which shows you the least popular option is the one that the general international consensus is around. And it's part of why I'm so pessimistic here about the future. Yeah. Because, you know, they even said, oh, well, we're, a lot, we're ready to turn over after 20 years of these moribund PA forces. They're going to roll into Gaza and administer. Good luck. And who's going to pay them? Who's going to give them weapons? Also, what authorities are they going to have? What are their rules of engagement? It's more likely they're going to turn into a full-blown military-style dictatorship, which, I don't know, I mean, is that necessarily beneficial or not? Will they even have the capability to oppress the population if they want to? And then if the Israelis are the ones who are paying them, then they're going to be looked at as stooges by the population. N not a single option yeah. for any of this looks good. But I am at least heartened that they don't want to annex it. And I think one of the reasons why is because a lot of them lived through the, you know, what is it, the deoccupation or whatever of Gaza. And a lot of them, you know, one of the things that's highlighted is that inside, Israel is a very small country. And I just saw someone uh, putting this out yesterday. Nearly every day, the obituaries of fallen soldiers are in the newspapers and their, their photos are everywhere. This is going to climb day after. People know what this would take from annexation and military occupation. So I think that you know the reality of some of this is beginning to set in. So they may be opposed to a two-state solution, but the re the more that you move away and less support that you have for full-blown annexation, then it becomes pretty obvious what the eventual next step is going to be. Yeah, and just so people are clear on what that— um that removal of Israeli forces from within Gaza meant, and this is uh, Dr. Norm Finkelstein, compares it to, it's like taking the prison wardens from out of the prison and placing them outside of the prison. So yeah, there's a lot of mythology around like, oh, we let them do whatever they want. This is complete nonsense. There is a complete blockade. Um, Israeli prime ministers talked about, quote unquote, putting the Gaza population on a diet, no control over their airspace, no control over the borders, no control even over the sea. There are a lot of um, Gazans who made their living as uh, fishermen. That even was uh, severely, severely curtailed. So um, that has been the reality now for, uh, for more than a decade in Gaza at this point. And even before this war that led to horrific conditions for the human beings who live there in terms of a lack of clean water, in terms of a lack of sufficient food, massive unemployment, a majority of the population unemployed. So even before the destruction of the Gaza Strip, things were very difficult for people there on the ground. Yep, that's right. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career and here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. 
from herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right rug flooring. Okay, let's move on to U.S. Steel. This is a big and a major story. U.S. Steel, of course, probably one of the most important companies in the history of the United States, and I don't really, not exaggerating that, has had its ups and downs, I think it's fair to say, in its 102-year history, but or 122-year history, but hmm. recently uh, is really in the center of what I think will become a major political firestorm and highlights all of the perils, I think, of the international financial system. So first, let's start with the news. Let's put this up there on the screen. A surprise announcement yesterday that Nippon Steel, which is a Japanese steel conglomerate, will acquire U.S. Steel for $14.1 billion in cash. It's an all-cash deal that is being floated here. Now, the reason why this is important, Crystal, is that U.S. Steel has found itself in a couple of different problems and over the last couple of years. Just uh, recently, they actually were offered a cash and a stock deal for half of this amount of some $7 billion. So why does it make sense for this Japanese company to come in and pay $14 billion? There's a couple of really interesting things about this. Number one, Japanese steel or Nippon steel, I think Nippon is the word for Japan in Japanese. Uh, Nippon Steel is a Japanese government-backed steel company. It's basically a piece and a tool of Japanese industrial policy. What they have looked at is that U.S. steel is set to benefit from Inflation Reduction Act infrastructure spending. So what this Japanese company says is our steel production is very low. We are competing against China, which is one of the number one steel producers in the world. The U.S. government is about to hand a bunch of money to U.S. steel. So what do we do? We buy U.S. steel at a premium, and we are going to reap all of the benefits, economic benefits, to the Japanese shareholders and government of U.S. infrastructure spending. And at the same time, U.S. steel, which is probably steel, probably the single most critical national security industry, will now be directly controlled by a foreign government. Now, the the counter to what I'm saying is, what do you care? Japan is one of our closest allies. I agree. But just because you're a close ally doesn't mean that you should be controlling the backbone of American steel industry and of American industrial policy on top of some of the most important union jobs in the entire country. And it's not just me who is saying this. Senator John Fetterman, Senator J.D. Vance, and Senator Josh Hawley have all now spoken out against a deal. Fetterman in particular actually thought put this in very good terms. Here's what he had to say. And I just have to say it's absolutely outrageous that they have sold themselves to a foreign nation and a company can't do that steel is always about security as well too and i am committed to doing anything i can do 
from using my platform or my position in order to block this. And I'm going to fight for the steel workers and their union way of life here as well, too. And we cannot ever allow them to be screwed over or left behind. He is highlighting an important point, which we'll get to, is that the steel workers union was not consulted by Nippon Steel Management before the sale. Senator Vance also put out a statement. Let's go and put this up on the screen. He says a critical piece of America's defense industrial base was just often off to foreigners for cash. I warned of this outcome months ago. Rest assured, I will interrogate the long-term implications for the American people. So this is going to go to President Biden and to the Treasury Department for approval of this deal through something of a, it's a review process where any company which is critical to national security gets to either veto or approve the sale to a foreign company. And last but not least here, just to highlight again the workers, let's put this up there. The USW, the United Steelworkers Union, put out a statement slamming it. Say, say we're disappointed in the deal is an understatement. It demonstrates the same greedy, short-sighted attitude that guided U.S. Steel for far too long. We remain open throughout this process to working with U.S. Steel to keep this iconic American company domestically owned and operated. And instead, it chose to push aside the concerns of its workforce and sell to a foreign-owned company. Neither U.S. or Nippon reached out to our union regarding the deal, which in itself is a violation of our partnership agreement and requires U.S. Steel to notify us of a change in control or business conditions. And I think that highlights it really for me, is that they didn't consult, consult the workers. Clearly, uh, this is a major national security threat. And I have, again, nothing against Japan. But you need to ask yourself, why is the Japanese government willing to pay double what a U.S. company is for their own national security implications? Because, you know, it's a small island and they want as much control of supply as possible. I don't blame them. I would try to do the same thing if I were them. But we got to look out for our own interests. And I hope that this becomes a major thing here in Washington with these three senators who are speaking out. I would expect people like Sherrod Brown and others, especially as union workers themselves. I mean, this is what destroyed the union way of life. Yeah, is 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 you know Chinese Mexican outsourcing and Japan. I mean, you know, turn the clock back to the 1980s. This was what they were doing back then. We had the infiltration of Toyota and all that, all these other companies that make great cars, but you know, nothing against them on a production level. But just in terms of U.S. market share and U.S. control, it's never been worse than ever than right now. And it makes sense that Fetterman, who uh, a few consult yesterday's show, you will see, has yes, a, right. a lot of criticisms of these days, but that he has a sort of emotional connection to this company, these workers, etc. Um, I used to live in the greater Pittsburgh area and the steel industry is um, huge. I mean, in terms of the sort of like cultural understanding of the place and how people see themselves, U.S. Steel being the most iconic of the uh, American steel companies. And now, if this deal goes through, which let's be clear, Biden should block this deal. 100% he should block this deal. And the fact that you have some bipartisan support for blocking this deal, I would hope would encourage him to move in this direction. The number one steel maker in the world is uh, China Baowu Group. Number two is ArcelorMittal, which is Indian. Mm -hmm. And then number three would be this Japanese steel company. So, you know, it gets to the core of some of the problems with just uh, the neoliberal view of shareholder value and uh, globalism over and profits over literally anything else, 
that's the sort of thinking that would lead you to say, yes, this is acceptable and it's fine for us to just, you know, sell our defense industrial base off to the highest bidder wherever that comes from. I am hoping that there's been somewhat of a shift within both of the parties where they see the problems with that direction ultimately. But, you know, for me, it's also actually very personal because I did used to live in this area. And, you know, it used to be, Sagar, you were talking about like the, the decline of the middle class and the end of the union way of life and all of those sorts of things. It used to be in this, this town that I lived in, there was a large steel mill. Um, people could basically graduate high school walk across the street, get a good job at the steel mill. I mean, this is tough work. Let's be clear. This was not like, you know, a picnic. It's It's very very difficult. It's dangerous, et cetera. But you could afford a house. You could afford a vacation. You could afford to support a family on one income. And then, you know, that basically went away. And that steel mill is all but shuttered at this point. It also, I believe, was sold to uh, a foreign buyer as well. And that area of the country has been thoroughly decimated by the outsourcing and destruction of those jobs. What also makes this noteworthy at this point is that you've had now two successive administrations trying to rebuild American steel. So Trump imposed a 25% tariff on most steel imports, trying to, you know, it's a bit of a protectionist action to try to bolster American steel. Uh, Trump and Biden later renegotiated many of those tariffs into quota arrangements in which foreign governments agreed to limit the amount of steel they exported to the U.S. And as you pointed out, Sagar, the infrastructure law and the Inflation Reduction Act both were meant to drive up steel demand and prices by limiting competition from foreign markets. But uh, they clearly did not do enough to forestall this type of outcome from occurring. Yeah, absolutely. And look, I, I mean, the main thing that we need to prevent is that U.S. steel doesn't go in the way of Bethlehem steel. I've actually visited Bethlehem steel. Uh, my in-laws are from the region. It's, it's actually a fascinating thing. I hope that everybody goes to get to go and see the steel stacks. It was a huge part of the U.S. industrial base at that time. And the story of it is really sad. I mean, this was, you know, the I-beam uh, that was, it's very famous. I even have a t-shirt with the I-beam on it. And, you know, it was critical for World War One, World War II. It helped rebuild all of Europe. And then what happens? We rebuild Europe and Japan so well that by the 1970s, U.S. steel is actually too expensive. Bethlehem steel and U.S.-based produced steel is too expensive to the overall global market. And that's when the era of neoliberalism and globalism comes in. And we allow Bethlehem steel to basically go under. And you guys want to know when Bethlehem steel is today? It's a freaking casino. And it's like a casino and, all, and a wedding venue. It's nice, by the way. It's actually really cool, especially the party area and all that. But they've got markets and there's no steel. The steel uh, production facility is a place that you go and you take a photo of. That's really sad that we've basically turned it into a place of gambling like and museum. financialization. Yeah, mm-hmm. basically a museum as well as Mack Truck and some of the other things in the area as opposed to a place where it actually produced things. And the entire industry of that region, the history of it, was deeply linked to production. Production itself is so important. And the original reason why Bethlehem Steel flourished in the first place was because we had it here, we could control it, we could use it whenever we got caught flat-footed and we had to rebuild for World War II and we had to put all these tanks and all this stuff. Where do you think it comes from? We are very, think too about the uh, global supply chain, about what have we been covering here? All of this craziness going on in the Red Sea. You and I were talking privately yesterday about the Straits of Malacca, the Taiwan Strait. I mean, the era of international conflict on the high seas seems to be back. And the level of precarity in it from conflict is something that people really don't appreciate. Like if any one of those were to close or to pop off, not only would global inflation spike, I mean, theoretically, huge portions of the U.S. economy would just go under overnight. 
That's because of globalization that we've allowed to occur. So whether the Japanese promise to keep the jobs here or any of that, it's about control and it's about who actually is here in the U.S. and about critical decisions and relations with governments. And their government wants to buy it for a reason. So we should think about that. And we should say maybe we're the ones who should control it in the first place. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. honestly about, like, the basics of statehood. Yes. <laughs> like, yeah. Do you have control? Do you have the capacity, if you need, to spin up production? And, you know, we've been thinking about statehood in the context of, of Palestinians. And uh, so it, it's made me think a lot about, like, what are the components of actually having a mm -hmm. real legitimate state? And, you know, having control over your own defense industrial base seems like a pretty critical component of that, especially for a wealthy advanced nation such as ours, and one that we've obviously lost sight of now for decades at this point. Yeah. Sagar, I wonder if you have any insight into whether you think Biden will block this, because I actually think I actually think that there's a chance, just because, you know, his own sort of personal self-conception and the way that he has been framing his uh, economic pitch uh, blocking it to me would be consistent with some of the other elements of Bidenomics. Uh, I don't think he'll block it because it's an ally and because in the, so it's not just about Biden, it's about CFIUS, which is the actual board inside of the Treasury Department which will review all of this. The framework that you and I are talking about does not exist. The only framework that they have is, oh, threat? Okay, that will nix that. And that actually took a decade to get to the point where we would block anything that's coming in from China. If it was Saudi Arabia or any other country, we would probably block it. But Japan is just considered such a bedrock U.S. ally. And they're, they're saying all the right things. They're like, don't worry, we'll keep the jobs here. Hey, we're doing this because you guys are spending money. It's all good. We'll work with this, you know, the union, et cetera. That within the like new neoliberal view where we acknowledge that China is like on the outs, but everything else is allowed, I don't see Janet Yellen and others blocking this transaction. On the other hand, um, even just from naked, like cynical political calculation, uh, as I said, I mean, this is such an important part of the identity of Western Pennsylvania I would hope so. in yeah. and around the Pittsburgh area, which obviously a critical swing state. That area is in particular critical for Democratic performance. Um, and you have, you know, the, the union that is adamantly opposed and speaking out as forcefully as they possibly can, a, a union which I'm not sure if the steelworkers have backed Biden yet for his reelection bid, but they were certainly behind him last time around, and he has close ties with um, union leaders there and at other unions as well. So that's why I don't put it totally off the table that he could make the right decision here. It's, it's possible. I would hope so. And look, the more that we see this type of action— we need, you know, bipartisan, actual, we need people like Sherrod Brown to come out. We need many other swing states, Bob would. Casey and others. Like if that, if it becomes mobilized and a few people actually make this known that you care about something like this or you know somebody in the area and the union way of life, all these things depend on you. Not to mention, you know, the overall national security. We could get it done, but I, I'm, I am really not hopeful just because Capital wants this. If you're a U.S. Steel shareholder, this is the best thing that ever happened to you. You just got a hundred percent premium on your stock. Like, and these people are about to make a lot of money. So if you think that they're going to allow seven billion in profits just to go idly by because you know some YouTubers and a couple of senators say something, they are going to fight, I think, tooth and nail to make sure this goes. Imagine through. if Scranton Joe, yeah, <laughs> is the one that allows the sale of U.S. Steel to a foreign country to go through. All right, stranger things have happened. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. 
Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. All right, let's talk about this new report from ProPublica with regard to Justice Clarence Thomas. Let's put this up on the screen. ProPublica has, of course, been doing a deep dive into the many luxury vacations that he has taken um, that have been footed by various wealthy individuals, Harlan Crow in particular, the funding of his mother's house, the payment of private school tuition, um, the uh, offering of a generous loan, which he maybe never had to repay for this luxury RV, etc., Well, now we are getting some insight into when all of these perks and all of this cash began to flow. They say here, a delicate matter, put the tear sheet back up on the screen, a delicate matter, Clarence Thomas's private complaints about money sparked fears that he would resign. What they track here is a conversation that he had in the early 2000s in which he expressed concern to a Republican lawmaker that he didn't make enough money and then he might have to resign from the court so that he could go and earn sufficient cash. Let me read to you um, this first quote that we pulled, put it up on the screen. After almost a decade on the court, Thomas had grown frustrated with his financial situation, according to friends. He'd recently started raising his young grandnephew, and Thomas's wife was soliciting advice on how to handle the new expenses. The month before, the justice had borrowed $267,000 from a friend to buy a high-end RV. That is a fancy RV. Mm. And by the way, like we said, we don't know if he ever actually paid back that money. Let's put the next piece up on the screen. Thomas brought up the prospect of justices resigning to Stearns, the Republican lawmaker. Worried, Stearns wrote a letter to Thomas after the flight where they were together, promising to look into a bill to raise the salaries of members of the Supreme Court. Put the next piece up. Congress never lifted the ban on speaking fees or gave the justices a major raise, but in the years that followed, as ProPublica has reported, Thomas accepted a stream of gifts from friends and acquaintances that appears to be unparalleled in the modern history 
history of the Supreme Court, some defrayed living expenses, large and small, private school tuition, vehicle batteries, tires, other gifts from a coterie of ultra-rich men supplemented his lifestyle, <laughs> such as free international vacations on the private jet and super yacht of Dallas real estate billionaire Harlan Crow. Um, just to give people a sense of, you know, how, how tough were things for Clarence Thomas and the other Supreme Court justices, which in fairness, many of the other Supreme Court justices, either they were already wealthy or their spouse was wealthy. So he mm. was legitimately one of the quote unquote poorest mm -hmm. members of the court. But even in 2000, he was pulling in the Supreme Court salary. It's not like it was nothing. It was the inflation-adjusted equivalent of roughly $315,000. So those were the poverty wages that were forcing yes. him to potentially resign from the court. I see this with public officials all the time. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, to, to really explain the phenomenon, you have to understand uh, the water within they swim. Is on paper, they're important, but they make an upper middle class salary. Let's be real too, but it's a pretty good salary compared to vast majority of Americans. But the problem is, is that they're dining and they're hanging out all the time with millionaires, multimillionaires, and billionaires. Yep. And so your peer group becomes much richer than you are. And you start to ask yourself things like, hey, my buddy's got a lake house over here. My other friend's got a private jet. My other friend drives a Range Rover. I'm such an important guy. Why don't I get those things? Mm -hmm. But what they don't get is that you are welcome to any of that. You just have to leave. But if you left, then you'd have to compete in the marketplace and buy your own business or at the very least sell out and be corrupt. And you wouldn't have the same level of you power. You have the power. So they want to have it both ways. He wants to both be a household name and to be a Supreme Court justice and have all the accoutrement of the super rich. Yeah. To which, again, I say, Clarence, resign. You can live a great life, man. By all accounts, he loves his RVs and the motorcycles and all that. He could quit today and he'd make 10 times more money, Absolutely. you know, just on the speaking circuit. Instantly. But he doesn't want to do it because he loves being on the Supreme Court. And this is what really annoys me about it is these guys just simply have to accept that being in public service means taking a huge cut to your lifestyle. So be it. I don't even necessarily think it should be that way. Uh, I think that we could come up with all kinds of different systems because my, you know, my want is to remove corruption entirely from the system. But I also just have such a hard time, you know, even explaining it this way, not sitting here and saying $318,000 in adjusted income, that's a ton of money. Yeah. That's enough. You could make a mortgage, you could buy a house and you could make your dumb, you know, payment on a less higher end RV. You could afford a $100,000 RV. Mm -hmm. Why do you need a $267,000 RV? <laughs> this is where I just think they want like absolute limitless of the resources of the, uh, the, you know, what they swim in. And I'm sorry, that's just not how America works. Or become rich first and then do it. That sounds like a tried and true strategy too. There are a lot yeah. of middle-class people out there who are able to afford a, you know, reasonably yeah. priced RV. And this so is not even Clarence Thomas, $315,000. Yeah. Surely you would have been able to, you know, pursue your passions in that regard. I thought some of the quotes in this piece were remarkable. This Congressman, Florida Representative Cliff Stearns, who they describe as a vocal conservative who at that time in 2000 had been in Congress for 11 years and occasionally socialized with Justice Thomas. He said that um, in an interview with ProPublica about this exchange where Thomas is saying, eh, I might resign from the court because I'm just not making enough cash. He said, quote, his importance as a conservative was paramount. We wanted to make sure he felt comfortable in his job and was being paid mm -hmm. properly. I mean, that's as much a direct acknowledgement of this whole scheme as you could possibly get. 
At the same time, they track, they say during his second decade on the court, after this conversation, Thomas's financial situation appears to have markedly improved with the help of his wealthy benefactors. I added that part in. In 2003, he received the first payments of a $1.5 million advance for his memoir. That was a record-breaking sum for justices at the time. This is interesting to me. Ginny Thomas, his wife, who had been a congressional staffer, was by then working at the Heritage Foundation and was paid a salary in the low six figures. So his wife gets a nice gig as well, paying her well. He's getting these dozens of expensive gifts, most of which were never reported to the public. And so it seems like this circle of conservative donors, in order to ensure that he and apparently the other justice they were concerned about at the time was Scalia, didn't resign and stayed on the court because Clarence Thomas indicated like, oh, it's not just me. You know, it may be also at least one other justice who would resign. And Scalia was the other, quote unquote, least wealthy of the justices who were on the court. And so they ramped up their gifting, uh, which all flew under the radar. And, you know, it also exposes the distance between public expectations for quote-unquote public servants and um, the schemes that they, you know, the ethical schemes that they actually operate in. I mean, you still have the court really blocking any sort of scrutiny, any sort of code of conduct that would have any teeth. That's very different from the entire rest of the federal judiciary. And I do think at its core, it reminds me of like Bob McDonnell, Very similar story where, you know, he and his wife were accepting all of these luxury gifts from people who had business with the state and stood to benefit from state policy. And lo and behold, that goes to the—he's found guilty of corruption. It goes to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court says, nah, we don't think that's corruption. Hmm. Interesting that they would side with him on that case, Yeah, it's a problem for them. It really is. And my only hope is that these stories are setting up standard, at least in the federal judiciary, who are those who are, you know, future Supreme Court nominees where you have to learn to, at the very least, even if none of this is illegal, it's like, you don't want to deal with this in all these stories. This will be one of the, probably the most enduring things that people remember about Clarence Thomas was Anita, what is it, Anita Hill, and now this. And I think, you know, why would you want to tar your legacy that way? It's just not something Thing that you would want to deal with. So, at the, you know, at least let shame be a part of the guiding thing. Although I generally think most of these people are too shameless to ever care. Yeah. We'll see. Let's move on to Biden. Uh, there's some extraordinary things happening in the Biden campaign. Mm-hmm. Uh, poll just came out this morning, Crystal, from the New York Times. Yeah. Sienna, Trump is actually winning with young voters. Uh, every poll that we look at shows Trump leading in swing states, shows Biden losing, shows Biden at the lowest level for approval ever um, in the modern American presidency, including Jimmy Carter. And yet, uh, his campaign is completely calm. Here is a journalist who embedded with the Biden campaign describing their state of mind right now. Let's take a listen. The central article of faith that I heard over and over for the last six months, really, as I've been asking this question, which is what is the plan here, uh, is that voters just aren't really paying attention in the way that they're going to uh, a year from now when it, when it actually comes time to vote or 11 months from now. The point that, they, that I heard repeated over and over again is that once real Americans, real people who are currently not thinking about politics at all, once they lock into the fact that this is going to be another election where Donald Trump is on the ballot, everything is going to change. That's going to change for young voters. It's going to change for voters of color. It's going to change for really the Biden coalition. Now, I heard this over and over while Biden's numbers were tanking, to make make a long story short, and not to sugarcoat it. But their argument is that if you look at polls, if you look at focus groups, real people who, you know, are the people who vote in elections, 
simply aren't it's not just that they're not paying attention yet. They don't even understand that Trump is going to come back in a year uh, on the ballot and that the, the major threat is there. So that's why the Biden campaign has started keying in on Trump more, talking about what a second term would look like. I, you know, I have a lot of questions about that. Real people don't realize Trump is going to come back. Really? Uh, I, I don't think that's true. Uh, it's like, have more faith in the American public. Maybe they know that. They just don't care nearly as much as you do. And they're like, well, when they find out the stakes, it's maybe going to flip on a dime. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty big bet to make. It's certainly possible. Let's put this one, please, up on the screen. Uh, this is the actual profile that he wrote. The alarming calm of the Biden campaign inside re-election HQ. The president's aides feel confident the 2024 race is totally under control. But (laughs) what sticks out to me is just abortion. It is very clear to me. They say beyond the economy and Trump's leaning to fascism, he declined to give. uh, It is abortion that is most likely to play a fundamental role in shaping the electorate. Democrats have made it a centerpiece of their argument. And Trump was crowing about the end of Roe. Ron DeSantis also asked about it. And they point to consistently the underperformance on the ballot of these abortion state measures for the reason why they remain hopeful. I think, again, that is a good case. I think it remains probably the only case as to how Biden will get reelected. But then at the same time, Crystal, I look at a New York Times Siena poll which shows Donald J. Trump leading with young voters from 18 to 34. And I see RFK Jr. who was sitting at this desk just last week and he's leading amongst young voters. And I think about who he could take votes away from and the level of chaos. And so I could see it every single way. I could see a Trump blowout win, a Trump blowout loss. I could see a a Biden, you know, a marginal edge. I could see Biden winning but not getting the popular vote or at least the smallest share because of someone like RFK. I just think this is a hell of a thing to gamble on, but it fits with Biden's career. He's stoic and he has, he's an egomaniac. He believes most in himself. And he's like, the American people will come to me and to see, you know, the benefits and why Trump is so, so bad. But there's not a lot of data to support that right now. It's wild to me. They start this piece with a presentation that uh, Biden campaign operatives were giving to some other political operatives who'd been associated Mm -hmm. with the Obama campaign. And these Obama campaign people were like, wait, you don't have, like, you're not pushing the panic button. You don't have any more of a plan than this. I mean, part of their plan is literally just an assumption that Biden's numbers are going to get better. Mm -hmm. They say in this piece, the Biden strategy assumes that his poll numbers will get a cyclical improvement. Why? Oh, yeah. Like, that just doesn't happen. I mean, maybe typically or usually or whatever, but you're not going to do anything to try to make that happen. And you're out here telling everybody, like, this is a profound threat to democracy. And the, the whole reason Biden's running again is because of Trump and what a unique risk he is, et cetera, et cetera. And then you're just like, everybody relax. Mm-hmm. All of these poll numbers, one after another, that show Biden losing in literally every single swing state. And bleeding support, by the way, from his own base, you're just cool with that? You think it's just naturally going to revert? Maybe. Yeah, maybe. I mean, maybe the possible. polls are wrong. Yeah. Maybe once people dial in on Trump or whatever, or they're reminded of how obnoxious and chaotic he is, or maybe the criminal charge. Maybe, but you're not doing anything really to try to effectuate that outcome. I do think one thing that they point to which seems like uh, a pretty obvious failure to me is, you know, that Biden can't, I mean, that Obama campaign back in 2012 against Mitt Romney, they actually ran a brilliant strategy. Mm -hmm. They got out extremely early. 
It was a it was risky because they blew a lot of cash early, defining Mitt Romney for the public as this out of touch billionaire, and it worked. It stuck. It worked. Romney's personality sort of played into that. He made a number of horrific gaffes on the campaign trail, et cetera, that really cemented that image. They've done very little to even remind people of if your whole thing is like I'm better than the other guy, and you may not love me, but Trump is horrific. Like. Why aren't you amplifying some of the things about Donald Trump that you think are horrific? Why aren't you talking more about the criminal charges, the fact that this dude could very well be found guilty and be put in prison? You know, if that's your angle, if you're running on, you know, the lesser of two evils and that's your whole thing, which has always been their whole thing rather than an affirmative agenda, you better start leaning into that and making that case because people aren't feeling that in the way that they perhaps used to feel that. They say in this piece that if the campaign has an unofficial motto, it might be, quote unquote, calm the F down, trust the process, and vote for Joe Biden one more time. Mm. Really inspiring stuff there, guys. Really, really dialed in on the American public right now. That ought to do it, I think. And again, to highlight this, let's please, the mammoth polling that we have, can we put it up there on the screen? The job approval rating is at an all-time low, 34% approve, 61%. (laughs) Disapprove. That's crazy. And, you know, on the issues, I really think this highlights a big discussion we had yesterday about immigration. Can we put this up there, please, about the overall ones? On infrastructure, 42% actually approve, 52% disapprove. Jobs, 42% approve, 53% disapprove. Climate change, 38% approve, 54% disapprove. Go to the next one, and these are arguably the most important. Inflation, 28% approve, 68% disapprove. Immigration, 26% approve, 69%. I mean, these are fatal numbers. Inflation and immigration, immigration is going to be the number one issue that Trump talks about, that he's got the best ground on, and inflation is going to be the number one thing that is on Americans' minds. Now, will abortion, where he does certainly hold a double-digit lead, will that be able to trump everything else? It worked in 2018. Now, will it work in 2020, or sorry, 2022. Will it work in 2024? It's just the most open question. And as you pointed out too on the Obama campaign, the reason the Obama people are aghast is, you know, they would never take this for granted. They would never believe it all on the line up until some, you know, magic thing will carry you across the finish line. The way that you really win and you do well I think it really anything is that you attack it all always as if the stakes are existential, especially when you're in a one-on-one context. You should be working as hard as you are today, uh, hard as you can today, as you would the day before the election, because you could win somebody over here, you can win somebody over here. You know, you can. It's like death by a thousand or winning by a thousand cuts, I guess you would say. But they just seem resigned to this, and that's just a tremendously risky strategy. It's just not the way that really high-functioning and good people would operate anything, a business, a campaign, or whatever that you're trying to do in life. Yeah, and the big shift over the past two months has been among Democratic base voters, and in particular among young voters who, you know, have a lot of issues they're concerned about, but they're view on Israel is diametrically opposed to the Biden policy on Israel. And so that's part of what has contributed to uh, this New York Times-Siena poll that just came out, which I think counterpoints are probably cover in depth tomorrow. But voters between 18 and 29, nearly three quarters of them disapprove of the way that Biden is handling the conflict in Gaza among registered voters. They say they would vote for Trump by 49 to 43. That's young voters going for Trump by six points. And it's not like that's been that way forever. Back in July, just over this summer, 
those same young voters were backing Biden by 10 percentage points. Mm -hmm. So we went from a 10 percentage point lead with young voters to a six point loss among young voters. And, you know, they interview some of these young voters in this piece. Uh, a number of them say, listen, I, I'm not going to vote for Trump, but I just may stay home. Uh, one of them was like, uh, <laughs> which doesn't make a lot of sense, but they were like, I'm unhappy with Biden over Israel. I might vote for RFK Jr. Mm. Their positions are not actually apparently it's different. It's a protest but, vote. Yeah, yeah. It is, it's a protest vote. And also, you know, people aren't always paying attention to the ins and outs of what everybody's position is. They just mm -hmm. feel like this is disgusting what's unfolding right yes. now. I may as well try something different, even if the professed views um, are not all that, you know, not all that different. Because the truth of the matter is Trump, Biden, and RFK Jr. are more or less lockstep in terms of Israel with different sort of like rhetorical flourishes, mm -hmm. perhaps. Yeah. Uh, I just think that this is the most precarious and crazy situation proceeding into election that we have seen since 92. And the stakes are so much higher today than they were in 1992. At that time, honestly, not all that much would have changed, regardless whether Bush or Clinton or uh, would have won, although Perot would have been. Perot would have been different. Honestly, yeah, he was, man. Man what, a missed, what a missed opportunity He's, to block NAFTA. He would have been a fantastic president, but it probably was never uh, on the table. But I think that the stakes today have literally, I mean, I know everybody says it in terms of why you should vote for me. When I say hi, just in terms of the tremendous uncertainty in the global system and for the American future and the variety of directions that we could go. And yeah. I just have no idea sitting here uh, because of such a high number of like variable outcomes that actually could. Yeah, we're at a very chaotic pivot point and that's why it really matters who the next leader is and you know the direction they take to that. And uh, yeah, it would be nice if we had some more inspiring choices than yeah, what we do. Well. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. 
There's a new movie coming out from A24, kind of an indie art house uh, film called Civil War that will be hitting theaters ahead of the 2024 election with some troubling scenes trying to play on the strife in the American political system. Let's take a look at some of the trailer and then a particular map of how they think a civil war would play out in this country. Let's take a listen. 19 states have seceded. The United States Army ramps up activity. The White House issued warnings to the Western forces as well as the Florida Alliance. There's some kind of misunderstanding here. What? Well, you're American, okay? Okay. What kind of American are you? You don't know? God bless America. Civil War. It's coming, Crystal, according mm. to them. Uh, and if you didn't catch that, that whole what kind of American, now just think in your head, If let's say there was a civil war. How would things divide? Would it be north and would it be south? Would it be west versus east? Here is how the foreign creator of this movie decided that a civil war in America would play out. Let's put this up there on the screen. So here's the map that he's got. Uh, according to him, the Second Republic of Texas and the Republic of California would be in an alliance mm -hmm. together. The loyalist states would basically include everybody but the old Confederacy in something called the Florida Alliance, which includes Oklahoma to Florida, the Deep South, and uh, Tennessee. Then the Western forces would have Colorado looped in with Washington, Oregon, Montana, Idaho, and some, <laughs> so here's the thing, Crystal, just mm -hmm. looking at, at all of this, this map doesn't make any goddamn sense. Literally zero. It is hilarious. That said, I'm declaring my allegiance to the Second Republic of Texas and the Republic of California. So <laughs> my, here's my case. I'm curious who you're sticking with. Uh, just, just let's even put aside like, what, like why and how this could happen. Politically, it obviously would be stupid. Yeah. Re California and Texas are two of the only states in this country which are more akin to nation states. So Texas on its own would be the eighth largest economy in the world. Uh, California, I believe, would be larger than the mo almost every other country inside of the G7 except for Japan. If you combine them together, and I actually checked into this, it would be the equivalent of some $5.9 trillion in GDP. So it would be the second largest economy, or sorry, the second largest economy in the entire G7 behind the US. And then if it would be US, China, and it would be this, whatever this alliance is. So a powerhouse, they've got huge populations, one and uh, two in terms of the overall US density. And then you consider the fact that you have Pacific port access, you've got Atlantic port access, you've got easily they would gobble up Arizona and New Mexico. I don't know why those two were included in the loyalist states, so they would control the vast majority of the border with Mexico. So that's who I'm betting on well, um, in this uh, so-called. Also, they have a lot of military-aged uh, males, infrastructure, and bases and other things in this area. But that's who I'm going to stick with in the so-called alliance. Well, my— reasons are much less tactical and much more emotional. Okay. Every state I've ever lived in is in the Loyalist Alliance, mm. and the states where my parents are from is okay. also in the Loyalist Alliance. So I've lived in Ohio, Virginia, Kentucky, and New York. 
So I got to stick with the loyal. And also, I'm an American patriot, so I'm going to stay loyal to the American project here. Um, We do have, though, you know, a tremendous industrial base in the uh, Loyalist Alliance. Uh. The old old industrial Midwest can get a new burst of energy with this uh, this Civil War, apparently. You know, when I initially saw the map, let's Mm. put the map back up on the screen. When I initially saw it, I reacted negatively to the fact that it's so preposterous. But I'm actually kind of glad they made it preposterous because otherwise you just turn the movie into some other like right. uh, proxy war in our endless culture battles. Mm-hmm. If you had it more of like a red state versus blue state situation, it would be the move. It would make the movie like insufferable, mm-hmm. and you'd have you know blue state Democrats cheering for one side in the movie and red state Republicans cheering for another side, and even that wouldn't make a lot of sense because. You know, think about a state like Georgia. So Georgia, uh, overall, it's a swing state, and there are incredibly conservative, Trump-loving Republicans, and there are extremely pro-Joe Biden, you know, uh, Democrats in the urban areas. So because so much of our cultural divides now are more based on education, based on urban-rural it doesn't, there wouldn't really yeah. be a map split that would make sense. So I'm kind of glad that they made it preposterous so that you don't get into these like weird yes. cultural divides. This is a thing. There's a big thing on online people like to talk about and play act and cosplay, civil war. And it just doesn't make any sense because our problems are not geographic anymore. And to the extent yeah. that they are, they are class based and they are from a sorting of urban versus rural. If you live in an urban area, you're far more likely to be a liberal, to be college educated, to be higher income, to have separate, separate cultural taste and you could be I don't know 10 15 miles away from somebody who you would never interact with ever on a daily basis you know the whole thing about the original North and South Civil War is that the dividing question of that time was slavery and the economic system of which it helped to perpetrate which was industrial North and the slave owning South and agrarian versus industrial economies and it happened to divide amongst geography but today that's not what our problems are it's all based on education it's all based on class that's cultural taste and it's just city versus urban. So to that extent, it doesn't make any sense. Another reason, here's one reason though to be doubtful of the loyalist states. The Western forces or Western Alliance or whatever it's called within the map, they have, uh, I think, a decent portion of the nuclear weapons and they would have control on that. So I'm not so sure how much control there would be. The question too here about the so-called like civil war and balkanization is that any true balkanization, if it were to ever come in America, would be rural versus urban. And that's also why it's just not going to come because of the way that the governing authorities are. We are not even close to the levels of what things looked like in the 1860s. And people should actually read a ton more about how the actual country came apart between the 1830s and all the way up until 1861. The dividing questions of slavery, the way that it worked through the so-called compromises. We're not even close to that. So I agree with you. The fact that the map is so dumb is to a benefit of the movie because it purely exists in the realm of fantasy and what it would look like. It sort of reminds me of when Mr. Beast did the Olympics. Yeah, exactly. And he just like solved world peace. Randomly solved all these different territorial disputes. But because he did it in a non-ideological way that was just totally haphazard and random, it was fine, right? It's sort of like that. Like the idea that Kentucky and West Virginia and New York would be in alliance together Mm. and that, you know, Colorado and Idaho 
or the only one that makes any sense is really the what do they call it? The Florida, Florida whatever. Alliance. Florida yeah. Alliance. But then why would Oklahoma not join Texas? Oklahoma's uh, well, this is Oklahomans are going to get upset, but you guys are basically Texas. Yeah. If, as if you go and at least the way I was taught, uh, we have actually. Do they have in Virginia? of Texas history, like Virginia history. Yeah, of course. We have an entire year of curriculum dedicated to Texas history, which I've always thought is amazing. And the first thing they always teach you is that we were our own country once and we can be, <laughs> uh, which is why we are allowed to fly our flag as high as the U.S. flag, because we were once a republic. If so I was a Texan, I'm not sure, I'm not a big fan of Oklahoma. I think um, I, I w I'm not sure I would really want it to own Oklahoma. Oklahoma. I mean, I haven't spent much time there. It seems okay. It looks like some decent farmland, you know, some Tulsa's things out there. They can nice feed enough. the capital in Austin. Uh, that's where we'll get a little Hunger Games action going. So anyway, look, uh, it's going to be a fun, it's going to be a fun Do you think it's going to be good, the movie? Uh, it's, it, if we were talking about this before. It's got high variance. It's either going to be horrible or it's going to be fantastic. And there's no in between. The guy made Ex Machina, which is a great movie. Yeah. Uh, if I were to, th I mean, the cast, I love Jesse Plemons, love him. His wife is Kirsten Dunst, so they're both playing oh, I didn't in there. Know. Nick Offerman is he he's a great actor. Uh that other guy who played Pablo Escobar from Narcos, I've only ever seen him as Escobar. I don't know much about him. So it's a big lift for him to play such a, a leading role. Uh the African American gentleman who is in there, I know him from The Wire. He was he's a he's a very good actor. So we'll see. I think it's probably gonna code like capital L liberal, which means it'll probably be bad, but we'll see. <laughs> Uh, this is a high we'll see situation. You know, I will I watch I it. I mean, but you liked Barbie, which was the most capital L liberal movie Here's of all time. So. I watch a lot of movies. I love movies. <laughs> I'm an AMC A-list member. Like, I, I, watch, I will basically watch almost anything as long as it's got a decent enough review just to go check it out. So yeah. I'm the wrong person to ask. Yeah. I'm gonna, I, I want to see it, but I will do what I always do, which is let other people see it yeah, first. And then go. if it's worth uh, my time. Right I'll now, what on my list is Wonka. Big Chalamet head. I'm praying and hoping for him. He's our only chance at a, at a next generation movie star. I need him to bulk up a little bit though. That's what we need from him. Anyway, guys, uh, you've heard enough of this commentary. Uh, we appreciate <laughs> it. We're actually filming, as you said, uh, one of those segments that we'll be releasing later. Um, so that's why we're ending things a little bit earlier today. We're gonna have more uh, that we'll be filming evergreen content on Thursday. Those Norm Finkelstein and Tucker Carlson interviews exclusively released to our premium subscribers first before them being publicly. So if you can support us, breakingpoints.com. Otherwise, we will have a fantastic CounterPoint show for all of you tomorrow, and we'll see you on Thursday. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org.
Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.